stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Listening in, Playa de Carmen, Mexico. Burgos, Bulgaria and Paisley, Scotland. I am your parliamentarian of the podcast, your colonel of the colonies, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast. Dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming, good day. There'll be a flag flying out there in the morning that I swore to uphold. Armies of good men have died for it, gladly. It's a battle flag and it's a flag of victory. I'm rather proud to be under it. And I wouldn't want to go out in the morning like you and know that I was going to be a traitor to it. In this episode of the Shot and Shield Supercast, your emails and DMs, a very unfortunate watch-along. Oh my god. Scenario builder called Rear Guard. I'll be digging into the audio archives for a show called You Are There. This is a good one. And I will be making a case for the Ukrainian company Stretlets. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, hey, Lord Scott, what's up? Usually the supercast is crazy with content. Okay, look. I've been working on gearing up the show with guests and roundtables. I've been doing this since like mid-September. And each time I try to get things recorded, <laughs> either the holidays, COVID, technical difficulties, or some medical issue comes popping up and it pushes things forward. I tried to do an interview with uh, Dr. Chris Bryce last week, and I was forced to cancel because I had this little health thing that I had to deal with. Regardless, it's just been a weird few weeks, all right? <sighs> but let's take a moment. Just take a moment. Let's breathe. All of us together. I want you to breathe. Breathe with me. <sighs> okay. Let me share with you some programming notes, all right? In a few weeks, I'm going to drop another Shot and Shield podcast, probably about two weeks. Dr. Chris Bryce, the editor and contributor to the book Forgotten Victorian Generals, will be joining me to converse about this book from the Muskets to Maxim series from Hellion and Company Publishers. Then I'll be joined by Chris Pringle, friend of the podcast, and the editor of the book, Hungary, 1848, The Winter Campaign, and his forthcoming, Hungary, 1849. We're going to be talking about the Hungarian Revolution and wargaming. Good stuff. Also, Neil Ringwald, blogger, wargamer, friend of the podcast, whose blog, ToySoldiersAndDiningRoomBattles.com, is a must-see for any wargamer. If you haven't gone to see it, you better see it, and you better do it now. He's going to be joining me in the future to talk about Back of Beyond Gaming. So as you can hear, there's no messing around. Lots of good stuff coming your way. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, how is Back of Beyond fit into colonial or 19th century wargaming? Well, technically, you know what? It doesn't. But I believe that most wargamers like myself who play colonial period or non-Napoleonic 19th century, we play these exotic games because we need a palate cleanser from the popular games like World War II and Civil War and Napoleon. Or you're like me, you're just sick of it all, all the popular games, and you just go right for something that's exotic, like colonial 19th century. You know what? I'll even put Spanish Civil War in there. Back of Beyond fits the bill. Look, you know what? Story time with Lord Scott. Check this out. I had this blank space on my wall in the studio, right? And I said to my wife, the Countess Sherry, I need a real nice Central Asian map to go right there. All right? So for Christmas, the Countess gave me this exquisite, fantastic, just amazing Central Asian poster. And you know what? Can I tell you? I posted it in the Shot and Shield Wargaming podcast group on Facebook. So I posted it up there. It's a reprint of a promotional map from the French automaker Citroen. 
And it was a promotional, it was, a, it was some promotional expedition by Citrian. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm not French, so I don't know. Citrian, their new half track in like 1934 or 1932 or something like that. And so all these French guys got together with like nine of these half tracks and they went from Damascus all the way to Pig King in these half tracks. Taking basically is almost like taking the Silk Road. And I'm taking a good look at this map. Now, I don't speak French and the, the map is all in French. So I'm just looking at it, trying to figure out what each of the words mean, right? Finally, I decide, you know what? I'm just going to go and search it out. So I go to Wikipedia, I go to YouTube, and I find these like all these little resources about what was going on. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is awesome. Not only does it fit right in the back of Beyond Realm, but also it's what a great pulp era scenario. You get nine of these half tracks and you're running from Damascus to Peking. I mean, are you kidding me? Plus, the whole Silk Road is everything I'm working on now for my uh, Silk Road Wars with the Russians, right? So I'm thinking, man, this what a great gaming idea. And so I wanted to get someone on to talk about Back of Beyond with me so we can kind of cover this. So anyway, so that's what's going on. Now, a couple of things I haven't mentioned. The top five and the giveaway. Okay, first, the top five. So I decided that I'm going to let the top five roll for a couple more weeks. Want to get some more votes in and to cover the results in the next Shot and Shield podcast. The reason I want to do that is because I want to get input from Dr. Chris Bryce. And like I said, we're going to be talking to him about forgotten Victorian generals. And I thought it would be interesting to hear his, his take, see what he thinks about the hero of the empire. Who personifies it? What's it mean? Also, it gives you a chance to get your vote in if you haven't already voted. So you got a couple weeks to do that. You could vote right now. Who do you think personifies the hero of the empire? Shot and Shield Wargaming Podcast group on Facebook. That's where you'll find the, uh, the survey. And as I said, I'm going to share that with you next podcast. That's why I'm letting it roll on. Now the giveaway. You, you guys are killing me. Killing me. Why do you all have to be so nice? I want somebody who's selfish and says, give me those things. But no, you're all really, really nice. I have this unit of German cavalry for Colonial Africa to give away, right? All you had to do was email me. I put you put all the emails in a, in, a, in a hat, pull a name. There you go. Boom, it's done. But no, every email that I've received has said, hey, Scott, they talk about, you, you talk about the subject you want to talk about. And then you end with, you know what? Give the figs to the next guy. I'm not going to be playing that very soon. So, you know, let somebody else win. You've all said that. You, every single one of you have said that. I'll prove it. I'll prove it. Let's get into it. Emails and DMs right now. Germany calling. London calling. Moscow calling. Washington, D.C. calling. Peking calling. Sydney calling. Message for you, son. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. Now, you can hit me up on the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. And I have received a couple email questions that you may find interesting. Also, if you, if you don't hear yours read, uh, it's most likely I just replied to you. So first email today comes from Garrett in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And Garrett writes, Lord Scott, I am enjoying the podcast. Thank you very much. I have a question about World War II. <laughs> okay. I know you and your guests talk mainly about colonial stuff. What do you have against World War II? Also, please don't enter me in the drawing for the metal figures I'd never use them. Give someone else a chance. Keep up the good work. I love the old radio stuff you find. As an expat working in Argentina, it's a great listen. <laughs> okay. So first off, uh, thank you very much for the uh, love for the uh, program. Uh, thank you for the uh, love regarding the old radio stuff that I find. And for the giveaway, uh, 
So this is what I'm talking about right here. Everybody's so nice and doesn't want any of these figures. <laughs> I still have them. Nobody won. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. So it's like, so here I am trying to give them something away and everybody's so nice, so nice to each other. So they're like, hey, look, you know, I'm never going to really use those. So give them, make sure somebody else gets them. I don't want to enter your drawing, but hey, great show. I don't want to enter your drawing. Here's a question. Hey, I don't want to enter the drawing. You know, somebody else can use them. <laughs> So I'm going to have to figure something else out. So there's no winner from last episode, and I have to figure out what to do now. <laughs> so no no giveaway in this episode. Uh, but uh, anyway, get, let's get back to, uh, to Garrett's question. What do I have against World War II? I don't have anything against World War II. I think I've said this uh, on this program once or twice. I know I've said it on Facebook I, when I first started in like 1978-79 uh, wargaming, it was American Civil War and World War II. Now, American Civil War, World War II, I just, just kind of got bored, and so I just stopped. With World War II, when I first started, uh, the game uh, system I was using was Angriff. Now, you old-timers out there, if you played World War II and you know Angriff, God bless you, because I don't know anybody else who knows this rule set called Angriff. And then I went on a command decision, then finally moving on to rapid fire. And actually, can I just tell you, for World War II, if you're not playing rapid fire, you're insane. I know there's a lot of other games out there, and there's some probably some really good games out there, but rapid fire is just, that to me is like the World War II game. I just, but as far as not playing World War II anymore, I just got bored. I just kind of got bored playing World War II. I may go back to it, unlike uh, America's Civil War, which I'm never going to go back to. I'm not going back to that ever again. But uh, World War II, I may go back to it in the future. I don't know. So, but no, I don't. I don't have anything against World War II. So there you go. I hope that answers your question there, Garrett. Thank you very much. Uh, move on. Uh, the next email here comes from Lewis in Chicago, here in the U.S. of A. And Lewis writes, Scott, are you ever going to do a show or have a guest on to talk about the Triple Alliance and the Paraguayan War of 1864-1870? You seem to be very European-focused. There's way more theaters out there than just those based in Asia using Europe's armies. It's nice you're giving away stuff, as most podcasts just sell stuff. Please don't pick me for the show's giveaway. I guess I've kind of sounded mean. Sorry, I do love the show. <laughs> Again, I can't give away these these figures. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's uh, dig into Lewis's question here. Um, the Triple Alliance and the Paraguayan War of 1864 to 1870. You know, I do plan on getting into that. I don't know much about it. I really don't. I'm very excited to uh, learn more about it. I'm actually trying to find a guest to come on to uh, talk about it so I can ask a, a bunch of questions. I've been doing a little bit of reading, but I don't know much about it. I can't dig in if I don't have a kernel of information outside of what I've, little pieces I've read here and there, or seeing some of the great miniatures and artwork that uh, some of our friends on the Facebooks have done. Um, yes, I will be digging into that uh, in, in one of these shows. I can't tell you exactly when. I do want to get a guest on to talk about it, like I said. Uh, but I don't have anything against uh, the uh, other theaters outside of Asia and Europe. I'm focused at the moment in my gaming. That's what I got for you. But yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not going to just be primarily focused the show on Asia, Africa, and Europe. No, not at all. So uh, there's other stuff like the Maori 
and New Zealand I like to get to. Uh, there's some Polynesia stuff I like to get to also. And obviously, I think an episode back or a couple episodes back did the Mexican-American uh, War. Uh, did a little watch along with that as well. So, so there's some there's some things. It's not totally going to be Europe or Asia or Africa. There's there's other parts of the world. I totally appreciate that. So, so Mr. Lewis from Chicago, thank you very much for your question. I hope that answers it. And I'm sorry you don't want to participate in the giveaway. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, let's get another email in here. This one from. Let's see, Brian from Imphal, India. And Brian writes, Scott, I had ordered and received British riflemen from War Games Atlantic, and they are really nice figures. How many of your figures are plastic? I'm glad for a podcast like yours. I'm not emailing you to enter in the giveaway. <laughs> I'm not into metal figures. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Again, I can't give away these figures. What's going on? Okay, Brian, so War Games Atlantic... Uh, their figures, their plastic figures, hard plastic figures, very, very nice, very detailed. Uh, not a lot of flash to them, so you got to appreciate uh, the artistry that goes into uh, what they're doing. In my collection, I have a couple boxes of Gripping Beast Arab Cavalry that uh, I'm going to be turning into some, uh, some step figures for my Silk Road Wars campaign. I also have a field force uh, of Napoleonic Austrians from XP Forge which are, that's the 3D printed stuff. Outside of that, I, I kind of got two issues with plastics, the weight and the assembly. When I moved from 172nd plastics to metals, it was one of the reasons was because of space, because I don't have a lot of space here, but also, you know, I got my eyesight's going, you know, because I'm getting older now. I think that there's a bigger range of figures to be had in metals. I also moved away from big monster games, just like one set, like, oh, hey, we're going to do El Alamein. Right on. We're going to do uh, Gettysburg. All right, cool. So I've moved on to more skirmish level games, and I wanted to do that in metals also. So normally, for me, when it comes to plastics, there's not a wide range of variety of figure types. There may be now, but when I stopped, there wasn't. The other thing is the weight. You know, so when I'm gaming, I want the weight of the figure on the table. When I pick up the, when I pick it up, there's a certain weight to it. There's a certain feel to it that I, that I like and I prefer. The Gripping Beast Arab Cavalry that I'm building for my project, my Silk Road project, the stands that I'm putting these figures on, it's going to be, there's going to be a metal figure involved with the plastic. So it still has that weight. And also I just, I don't mind building, but man, some of these figures, it's like you got the arms, the legs, the head, the, the torso, the, the feet, the, and you are building everything. I feel like Dr. Frankenstein sometimes. And so if you're going to be in plastics, that's great. God bless you. Awesome. But for me, I just, uh, I'd prefer the metals. If I'm going to do something, if I'm going to do some adjusting or some scratch building on a metal, I'd rather do that. Just take out the X-Acto knife, some uh, green stuff, and just start, you know, messing around with it rather than try to put it all together. Like I said, like I'm Dr. Frankenstein. So anyway, so I hope uh, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much, Brian from Imphal, India. Let's see, last email today comes from Arlen in Charlotte. And Arlen writes, Scott, really cool show. I like that you just don't talk for hours, but that there's some music and guests. And I like the old radio finds. You do a really good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. I have seen some of your painting 
and I've noticed that you have different shades of red on the figures you've painted, specifically your Turkmen infantry that was highlighted on the Badger Miniatures shop site. Did you do that on purpose, or is that just a lighting issue with the pictures? If you did it on purpose, it's a very interesting technique. Also, why? Keep up the great show. I don't play Africa games, so I'll pass on the German giveaway. Thanks. <laughs> Again, can't give away the medals. Nice. So the miniatures that Arlen is referring to are from Outpost Game Service, and they have a Russian war, Russo-Turkish war line of 28 millimeter figures. They're really nice, a little smallish, but they work well with like foundry, but artisan figs tend to look like basketball players next to these guys. And if, you, if you're going to the Badger miniature site, this is not a plug for Badger. I love Badger, Badger's awesome, uh, but this is not a plug for them. But if you go to that site under the Russian Empire banner, there is a set of Kievan Uzbek scout sets. It comes with one cavalry uh, guy and two foot guys. I bought them for Badger, the Badger game shop up in Wisconsin. I must have freaked them out because I cleaned them out. Enough figs for two cavalry units and two infantry units of uh, Turkmen. Because I was taking the Kievans and the Uzbeks, I was turning them into Turkmen. I posted some of the pictures on Facebook and the Badger folks reached out uh, because they wanted to highlight them, which is very, very kind. Um, I was very thankful. It was just really nice to be recognized like that, especially some of these shops that do that. And uh, so Badger put it on their on their website. So that's what Arlen is referring to. I did intentionally change the coloring of the reds because in my mind, in the tribal world, I cannot see in I, I cannot see that a lot of the colors would be the same, the same shade, except for maybe the whites and blacks, right? So if you have a whole, if you have a whole feel force of tribals, tribal figures, and they're all in red or they're all in purple or they're all in blue, I cannot see the same shade being the same. I just can't see it. Okay. It doesn't make sense to me. And the reason it doesn't make sense to me, because in the, in the tribal world, it would make sense to me that the tribal leader, whoever that would be, would not have enough money, would not have enough funds to, to provide his army, pr provide his tribal force with all the same color tunics, all the same guns, all the same swords. It just doesn't make sense to me. So when I put together a tribal field force, I try to vary the shades of their similar uniforms or similar tunics. So if they're red, maybe I do a little lighter red. Maybe I do a little darker red. Maybe I do a little, a little dirtier red, a little cleaner red, brighter, duller, you know, just try to mix it up a little bit. Sometimes I go, I go far off on the shade because these are, at least in my mind, I feel that these are figures or these are, these are units that they provided their own. And so, and I put myself in the imagination place of being a tribal warrior, you know, and I'm in my little hut, you know, on the Mongolian steppe. And I'm thinking to myself, well, the boss says we have to wear red. Well, I got this, I got this tan tunic, you know, let me take it, you know, kill a goat, drench it in blood. And now it's red or reddish. And then I moved on. I know, I, I don't mean to sound, I'm not me. I don't mean that to sound flippant. I'm not being, it's not a joke to me. I'm, I'm being serious. Just using that as an example, because some of these, uh, some of these tribes, some of these uh, warriors probably didn't have the funds to be able to get the perfect red. So that's why you saw very, very off colors in some of, uh, in some of my field forces, especially the tribal ones. I hope that answers your question uh, there, Arlen. I really do appreciate 
I, I appreciate the love of the show and love of some of the aspects of the show. And I hope I hope I didn't offend anybody with that. I just that to, to me that that sounds correct to me. And as a painter, as a as a, as you sit down to do these paintings and, and and paint these figures, you know, you've spent X amount of dollars on these metal figs. I'm going to try to do the best paint job I can. And I'm going to try to do it. In, what do I want my board to look like? And that's what I asked myself. So I want my board to have lots of color, lots of you know bright colors, dull colors. You know, I really want it to look good. So even if you look at the, even if you look at some of my games that I've posted, maybe they don't look perfect. Maybe they don't look awesome. But you know what? I'm trying, just like you are. All right. So there we go. Your emails, your DMs, your questions. Remember, you can email me at shotandshield@gmail.com. <laughs> This is Shot and Shield. Oh, damn. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. This is Shot and Shield. It's going to hurt you a lot more than it will me, I'm happy to say. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Discipline makes the strength of armies. Shot and Shield. The Shot and Shield Supercast rolls on. I was on Facebook and I saw that a player had put a video up of his unopened boxes of figures. There was a, there was a ton of them. The collection was stunning. And in his collection, there was a ton of Stretlets Crimean War figure sets. And I had made a comment that those are great sets. And the reply was like, eh, they're all right. Well, you know what? It's, it's time for Lord Scott to make the case. I'm here to do a job, nothing more. You are a name, a file, and a case number. That is all. It's time to make the case. I don't know if this is going to be a new segment, but it's pretty funny. Make the case. Look, I'm going to make the case for Stretlets. Now, I have moved on. I, I've, I've said this in, this in this episode specifically, and I've said this before, but I have moved on from plastics to metals. I did that on purpose. Okay. And one of the reasons was because of Stretlets. Now, Stretlets, let me get it, let me get into it. Stretlets uh, figs are from a Ukraine manufacturer, 172nd scale. It's semi-hard plastics. They have a pretty good range. Dark Ages, Napoleonic, Medieval, Ancients, Great Northern War, War of Spanish Succession, Wild West, World War One, American Civil War, Rift War, some World War II sets, and the Crimean War, Russo-Turkish War of 1877, and some colonials. This is not an ad for Stretlets. I don't know anybody over there. I don't even speak Ukrainian. So I just want you to be clear. This is not a paid deal. I just want to make a case for them. All right. So if you're into 172nd plastics, you need to pay attention. Okay. Because I'm going to make the case for these guys. I don't know anyone there. I'm not looking to get anything from them. When I was into 172nd, 
and I was building my armies for the Crimean War and the russo turkish War, I used this company. I used uh, Stretlets, and I also use Hat, or Hot, or what, however it's pronounced. All right, so look. The figs themselves, the figures, they're pretty chunky, and they definitely need a lot of knife work. There's some flash, and they come on these sprues that are wicked tough to cut, and some really weird flash in weird places, so you got to be really good with a knife. The color of the plastics are very shiny, and it takes a lot of Dawn liquid and a toothbrush to make them to clean them up for painting. A box of Stretlets is not for the faint of heart. When you open the box, you're committed. There's nothing. This is this is one of those. This is not like hat. Like hat, soft plastic. You open it up. The flash is great. Everything's clean. Boom, boom, boom. But every figure is the same. All right. I'll get into that in a second. But really, seriously, when you open a box of Stretlets and you open it up, you, this this is not for somebody without courage. You got to have courage going in. And when you open it, you're done. You're committed. And it sounds like a lot of work, and it is. But the figures have so much animation and so much expression for plastics and such a wide variety of poses, you got to make the case for them. And I'll give you an example. With Hat, when you get a set of British Dragoons, you get four different poses of horses times three and four different rider poses times three. With Stretlets, British Dragoons, you get 12 different horse poses and 12 different figure riders. That's a big deal. At least it's a big deal to me. The hat industry figs are easier to deal with. No question. Softer plastic, no flash, like I said. And they also have a very clean painting surface, whereas Stretlets requires a lot of patience. But if you are into 172nd scale plastics and into the Crimean War, you're already committed. Seriously. I mean, how many different, just on the Crimean War alone, how many different units were there? There was at least five or six cavalry units. There's at least four or five infantry type units. And that's just with the British. Then you have the different, you have one or two, let's see, three, three different types of artillery units. The French have even more. The only ones that are sort of basic one and two is it's like, okay, with the infantry for the Turks, there you go. Cavalry for the Turks, there you go. Artillery for the Turks, there you go. Three units. The Russians, pretty much the same. They're infantry units. You got the ones with the forage caps, and you have the one with the helmets, with the uh, the Picayune helmets with the, with the spike on the top. Or Picalb? Picalb? Picayune? I don't know. But you know, the one with the spike on the top. You can tell I'm not an expert. But you so And then you have your summer dress and your winter dress. Okay, but in, in the end, you could just use the forage cap and call it a day, and there you go. There's your, there's your infantry unit. You got really one style of artillery unit, and then you have maybe three, maybe four cavalry units. That's it. But there are such a, a varying degree of units in the Crimean War that Stretlets has them all. So if you're playing plastics and you're playing the Crimean War, Stretlets is pretty much your only outlet, and you're already committed. I'm telling you, if you're going to play the Crimean War, you're already committed, especially if you're going to play large battles in 172nd. But as I've already expressed, you need some good knife work really sharp knife. You got to have a lot of patience. And I will tell you, just getting the figures off the sprue is going to give you a headache. Okay. Now, it may it may sound like I'm, I'm giving you reasons why not to get in with this company, but I'm going to turn that around here because when they're done and they're painted and they're on the table, the table has so much flavor, animation, expression. You're, you're going to totally forget about all of your headaches. And I will tell you, when I finished the, my French infantry units and I looked at them on the board I really did I totally forgot all the pain and the agony and the headaches that come with working a box of stretlets 
I think in general, and, and because we're human, right? We focus on the difficulties and, and, the, and the roadblocks. And by doing that, we sometimes miss some of the great opportunities to make our boards better or more artistic or have more flavor to them. And I think that Stretlets is one of those companies. And I've seen it, if I see it in the Crimean War, I can say that's probably the same Napoleonics and probably the same in the Dark Ages and the Great Northern War. I think you can make your boards better. So that, this is why I'm making the case for Stretlets right now. I had to, I had to do it because I, when I saw that comment, eh, that's all, they're all right, they're all right, they're all right, figs. Actually, they're more than all right. They're outstanding. And like I said, with some really good knife where you got to sharpen your, you better have the best of the best exacto knife. Let me tell you straight out. And you, <laughs> and when you try to get them off the sprue, that's tough. That's some tough stuff right there. But in the end, they really do look really, really nice on the table. So that's it. That's it for, uh, for Lord Scott making the case for Stretlets on today's Shot and Shield Supercast. This is Shot and Shield. Honey ho, tip, tip them, burners, your uncle. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, Shot and Shield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. This is Shot and Shield. I'm waiting for an explanation. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Looks bad in the newspapers and upset civilians at their breakfast. This is Shot and Shield. Thank you for continuing to listen to the Shot and Shield Supercast as you listen to this show on your favorite podcast app, whether it be Ghana, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I do appreciate it. And we continue on. We're going to hit it right now. It's time for Scenario Builder. It's time to get pencil and paper ready. Get out your notebook. Get out your pen. Get out your pencil. Sharpen it. Be ready. It's time for Scenario Builder. Building better worlds. In this episode, Scenario Builder, I'm dropping a scenario on you called Rear Guard. In this scenario, two field forces have to protect retreating units from a large tribal force. This game is designed for four players, okay? So put that in your head. Now, you don't have to use four players. You can play with only two players or you can play it solo, but four players is ideal. And remember, when building these scenarios, I use the men that would be kings rule set. This is how I put it together. But you could adapt these uh, scenarios to other rules that you like, like maybe Sword in the Flame, setting these to blaze or anything like that, okay? So let's talk about the large tribal force first. We're looking at 60 point field force. No cannon, no elite units allowed, and only 15 points can be used of the 60 for cavalry. Okay, so keep that in mind. And again, that's if you choose to do that. You can use the 60 points for whatever you want, but just no cannon, no elite units, and you're limited to 15 points for cavalry. Two players handle this huge force. Their objective is to blow through the rear guard and stop the retreating army. 
The rear guard is made up of two forces. The first force, rear guard, is comprised of one European or European-trained field force of 35 points. No cannon allowed. This is built and run by one player, and obviously, the objective is to run the rear guard and give the retreating units time to get off the table. The other rear guard field force is shady. It's 18-point tribal field force, no elite units allowed, and run by another player. This field force starts out as allies with the main rear guard force. However, after the first two turns, dice are rolled to see if they break and run. Stay allied or join the other side. You're going to need four six-sided dice. They're going to be rolled. When you roll the dice, if one dice comes up one, one comes up two, one comes up three, one comes up four. In other words, you got this the scenario, right? A one, two, three, and four. That means they switch sides. If you roll the four dice and it comes up Yahtzee with an odd number, ones, threes, or fives, then they break and run. Outside of that, they stay with you. All right, so remember that. So it's a one, two, three, four in a row. They switch sides. An odd number Yahtzee, one, three, or fives, they break and run. So if you think about it, the rear guard player who's using the Europeans or the European uh, trained force, that puts a lot of pressure on that player because you never know whether you're going to get help or they're, they're gone or they switch sides and attack you. As for the retreating force, there's no value there. They can't fight for themselves. You're going to have to have some figures to represent that as they move off the table, you know, but they they can't fight. They're they're done. They're broken. Their morale's shot. They don't have any weapons. They're just trying to get out of dodge. Now, the attacking field force starts at the end of the table. The rear guard starts 1 foot inside the table and the retreating units start 2 feet from the edge of the table. Obviously, all measured from the same edge, and it's best to use a four by six table. Each turn, the retreating unit travels six inches. So if they're not being harassed, they're off the table in about eight turns. And then the rear guard player or players, whichever the case is, they win. If not, the players uh, with the large tribal field force, they're going to take the win. So there you go. This episode's scenario builder entitled Rear Guard. Now I will take this uh, scenario. I'll put it on the Shot and Shield War Games podcast Facebook group. I'll pin it up there for you. That way you can go back and refer to it. But I like this scenario. I have played this scenario once before and it is it, it is almost mind-wracking because you're figuring about eight eight turns and if I'm playing the attacking force, I'm like I got eight turns. I got get I got to get on the I got to get on the stick. I got to get this done. And if you're the rear guard player with the European uh, or European trained field force, you're looking at your buddy who's trying to help you, your ally, and you're not too sure, you know, what he's going to roll. He rolls something, he rolls one, two, three, four, and roll like that, boom, he's out, and he's attacking you. Or he rolls the Yahtzee, and he's bolting, and now you're stuck. So it does, it's, uh, it's definitely something where you're looking at it going, ooh, I don't know. Now, if you're the uh, if you're the other field force, the other rear guard field force, it's kind of fun because you don't know what you're going to do. You can't really strategize because you go to attack, and guess what? Now you're bolting. Or you go to attack, and now you're, who am I attacking? Well, I'm attacking this guy now. So it has a lot of, there's a lot of fun to it, and it's all kind of random too. So I, I, hope you, I hope you play it. I hope you enjoy it. Like I said, I'm going to put it on the Facebook group. And uh, if you decide to play it, please uh, shout out. Let me know that you've played it and how, how, what the results were. But there you go. This episode's scenario builder entitled Rear Guard on today's Shot and Shield Supercast. This is Shot and Shield. I hear the conditions in your army are appalling. Man, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual. 
the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. Hey, what the blazes is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. This is Shot and Shield. Thank you for continuing to listen to the Shot and Shield Supercast. It is time for a watch-along. And today we go to the Northwest Frontier to watch the last fight scene from the movie called, wait for it, Northwest Frontier. (laughs) The movie itself is from 1959. Northwest Frontier starring Kenneth Moore playing the hero, Lauren Bacall playing the love interest of the hero, and Herbert Lom playing the bad guy. The premise of the movie, which is set in the northwest frontier of colonial India in 1905, is that a British Army officer, Kenneth Moore, is sent to rescue a five-year-old Indian prince and his American governess, Lauren Bacall, from certain death at the hands of rebel tribesmen. Our watch-along starts at the one-hour, 58-minute point in the movie, and it's literally the last fight scene between the Afghans' attack of the train. You can find the movie on the Shot and Shield YouTube page or in a link attached to the post of this show. On the YouTube page, look for the uh, India list in my playlist and you'll find it. I'll kill some time here while you uh, find it and gear it up. Remember, you're looking for the one hour, 58 minute mark in the movie. You gotta check out Lauren Bacall here. Her range is stellar, especially in this movie. Uh, and You know what? In movies uh, where she was with Humphrey Bogart, it's the same. Uh, in the original Murder on the Orient Express, uh, in Blood Alley with John Wayne, she always plays Lauren Bacall. That's it. I don't think she has any other range. I mean, I'm not picking on her. That's just the way she is. It's like Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks doesn't play, you know, all these different. He plays Tom Hanks in every single movie. That's it. You still like the guy. I still like Lauren Bacall. She's good. She does her deal, right? You know, and and another thing. Why do all Indian princes need an American governess? Hmm? Seriously. Other countries don't have a governess they could provide? The Indian prince? No, I mean, there's got to be, there got to be more out there, right? I mean, why not, why not a Chinese governess, you know, or a British governess or a German governess? It's always an American governess. I don't know what's up with that. All right. So you should have it all set up, ready to go. And on the count of three, we are going to hit play together. One, two, three. All right. So here we go. There he is. Kenneth Moore, uh, Herbert Lom. So he he plays the bad guy in the in a lot of films. It's hard to see him as anything else other than the commissioner in the Pink Panther movies. Am I right? I mean, he played Napoleon in the 1968 War and Peace. But, you know, so he got that going for him. And so now they're all just firing at each other. 
Oh, he has he has the Maxim machine gun, and he's trying to. He can't like move it down. I mean, really? All right. So here, okay. So they're beating on each other. Herbert Lon leaves the uh, the car, and <laughs> Kenneth Moore's like, "Oh my head!" And now he's trying to get off the train. So Herbert Lom is trying to get off the get off the train. Oh, oh no! They're going up to the top for the for the ultimate for the ultimate scene on top of the train. So this is pretty good here. And Herbert Lom, all two hundred eighty pounds of them, trying to fight Kenneth Moore, who's like lean, mean fighting machine. They're on. T- <laughs> they got to get some tea in there. Is he getting a tea? All right. Okay, I got the gun. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Now he sees the signal, which allows, uh, which distracts, which which distracts uh, Kenneth Moore. So Herbert Lahm can go ahead and, oh, oh, he gets shot by the governess. The governess shoots him. And he falls off the train, and Herbert Lahm is no more. Lauren Bacall feels bad because she broke one of God's commandments. Herbert Lom looks up and he sees the rebels who are going to go after the train now. And by the way, Herbert Lom, his machine gun aim sucks. I tell you right now, he should be, <laughs> he should have had that all down. So they're going to hug here for a second, right? Is that what's going to go on? Yep, a little hug is saying, oh, you know, you, you're good, you're good. You help me out. Oh, he's getting a scratch. Are they going to get some tea? <laughs> I do like the, the costumes in this. Uh, whoever did that did a really nice job. That was, if you're watching this with me, you just made a very, uh, very James Bond sort of uh, comment. What happened to Herbert Lom? Well, he got off. Yep. I guess he he stopped at the train, decided not to continue on with the. It's like, come on, really? Uh, you hear the music? The music means the bad guys are coming. And so, you know what? Just as a real quick note. Somebody on one of the Facebook pages said that, you know what, there, the Afghans really didn't get involved with uh, cavalry very much. I, I got to tell you, from all my reading, I got to disagree. Because if this is supposed to be Afghanistan or this is supposed to be India with all the hills and everything, look at those horses. They they're probably have to be pretty good horsemen to be riding through that. He gets his hat on. It's nice. Takes a drink. Stiff upper lip. Oh, <laughs> what just happened there? A bunch of guys. I never understood, even in the cowboy movies, I never understood why the cavalry or the bad guys would always chase after the train. Really? What are they going to do? It's like a dog chasing a car, you know, trying to get the wheel. It ain't working. So here we go. So. So Kenneth Moore grabs the machine gun and he has as much luck with the machine gun as as Herbert Lom did. His aim sucks. 
Oh, he has one guy with a Vickers machine gun. You're out of your mind. Now, I've never been in the, I've, I've never been in the military. I've never been in the army. But I just imagine a machine gun probably mowing people down. If it didn't, then World War I would have been easier, right? Kenneth Moore sucks at firing a machine gun. Look at this. He's hitting nobody. I mean, he can't see anybody right now. You know, and then if you watch this, I mean, how realistic is it that they're trying to they're trying to throw they're trying to throw torches into the coal the coal uh, the coal car? What is that about? It's like, what's that going to do? It's not really going to, I mean, have you ever tried to, to light a charcoal fire? It takes a while. That's why they give you the, the charcoal juice to go on there to get it going. So this is not, this is dumb, right? I'm sorry. This is dumb. Just throw, just throwing torches at the train. Great aim with the torches. just not their guns. He's coming at him with a sword. Look at that. He got the sword. And now, okay, now look. The obligate, all of a sudden, they hit the, the tunnel, and then the, the, the guys stop. They just stop. Say, so, you know what? We can't go in the tunnel. It's dark in there. Ooh, we're scared of the dark. I mean, really? Okay, you know, I'm going to stop it right now. I'm going to stop it right now. I'm sorry. That went on. That probably, you know, I probably should have picked a better one. I don't know what you guys think. This is probably a good movie. You know, I think I've seen it maybe two or three times. It's all right, you know, but really, I, I, I'm i so sorry. I should have probably picked a better one. But, you know, whatever. 1959's Northwest Frontier, the last fight scene, which really wasn't a fight scene. It was just uh, Herbert Lom and uh, Kevin Moore on top of the, uh, on top of one of the uh, passenger cars, fighting, throwing down. Herbert Lom fall, is off the, off the train. That's really, but before, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, it's probably not a good one to put on there, but I'm going to go for it since I've already committed. But before I bail out on this segment, there is some discussion on whether Afghans or Pathans were good horsemen. And even if, or even if they could put together a standing cavalry. And although this is a movie, I think this showed that cavalry could be used in that type of terrain. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Afghans and Pathans could have a cavalry, right? So on your table, if anyone says, hey, Afghans didn't use cavalry, you can say, well, they did in 1959's North Front, Northwest Frontier. I just, I'm just amazed. You know, this is going to be the second watch along we've had where those guys using the machine guns, their aim was horrible. How many, we should go back. I'm not going to go back right now, but you know, maybe you should go back or I'll go back and count how many, how many, you know, rebels were taken out by the machine gun. I got to tell you, I think I counted three of all those cavalry. If, uh, of all the, those rebels, the cavalry coming up. Are you kidding me? You only you, you only hit three guys with a Maxim machine gun or a Vickers or whatever that was. Really? <sighs> all right. You know what? <laughs> Maybe not one of my best watch alongs. Sorry. I hope it's entertaining at least. Anyway, that's it for today's watch along. This episode's watch along on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. Shot and Shield. Ah.
Oh, honor is satisfied. God clearly preserves you for greatness. Does your home have tile, stone, or grout? It needs to be sealed right now. Don't wait, because if you do, then you're asking yourself to have stains and buildup all up in there. You can stop stains and buildup. Protect your tile, stone, and grout with Miracle Sealants 511. That's Miracle Sealants 511 by Rustolia. Pick it up today at your local Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, or wherever Rustolium is sold. So stop being lazy. You have a tile project you're planning? Miracle Sealant 511. Pick it up today on your way home. This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. Thank you once again for continuing to listen to the Shot and Shield Supercast. It is time we get into some audio archaeology. So while digging around, I found this great piece of audio called You Are There. It's an audio from an on-the-spot reporter describing some historical event, as if the reporter was right there watching it happen. I assume that uh, you've all heard the radio call for the Hindenburg tragedy, right? Oh, the humanity! Get out of the way. Get this started. Get this started. It's fighting and it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast and all the folks between us. This is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's the place is 20, oh, four or 500 feet into the sky. It, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now and the flame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the morning mass. But have you ever heard a radio newsman describe the charge of the light brigade? I hadn't. So let's do it. The charge of the light brigade, you are there. This is Bill Leonard. I'm standing on the crest of a hill behind the British lines and overlooking the battlefield outside the Black Sea port of Balaclava in the Crimea. Perhaps you can hear the occasional discharge of a heavy gun in the distance. Those guns are British guns, which only a short time ago were captured by the Russian troops of Tsar Nicholas I. With this turn of events on this 25th of October, 1854, a big step has been taken by the Russians toward tracking the Allied siege of Sevastopol. This siege, as the world knows, has been in progress for more than one month, for it was on September 14th that the British and French armies, with some help from their Turkish allies, landed on the Crimean Peninsula and encircled the fortress city of Sevastopol. But any hope of a quick capitulation by the Russians has come to an end with today's dramatic upset. It's now a question of whether even the siege of Sevastopol itself can be maintained. For the Russians have launched a relieving action here at Balaclava, which, if it continues, would seem to have every prospect of success. We're set up just behind the back. October 26th, 1854, Balaclava in the Crimea. The charge of the British Light Brigade. You are there. CBS takes you back 96 years to the Battle of Balaclava in the Crimean War and the celebrated charge of the British Light Cavalry. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. With all the modern facilities of radio present and CBS newsmen reporting from the scene. You are there. You are there is based on historical fact and quotation. And now, October 25th, 1854. 
before. A hill inside the Allied lines overlooking the battlefield at Balaclava and Bill Menace. Very black indeed for the British, French, and Turkish allies. The Russians have succeeded in taking three Allied defense positions down in the valley below our observation point. There seems to be a, a lull now in the battle. Both sides are regrouping and tending their wounded. Well, while we're waiting to see what develops, let me try to describe the battlefield here at Balaclava. It's a, a horseshoe-shaped valley, I'd say, about four miles long. An almost perfect horseshoe, but wide, very wide, over a mile wide at all its points, and ringed by a chain of hills. Now, we're set up on one of these hills at the western end of the valley. Directly below us, about 100 feet below, the floor of the valley is thick now with tents, horses, and soldiers in the very colored uniforms of the Allies. Especially striking are the brass helmets and the scarlet and blue uniforms of the British heavy cavalry. In the dim distance, we can see the movements of the Tsarist reinforcements. And on the hills behind and above them, I can make out the heavy field guns and emplacements of the Russian artillery, and it's a formidable concentration indeed, believe me. Two of my CBS colleagues are stationed down in the valley with the British forces. Well over to my left, with the British cavalry divisions under the command of Lord Lucan, Ned Calmer is waiting to give you the picture as he sees it at the moment. So come in, Ned Calmer. The men around this area, tough, brave cavalrymen, are inspecting their equipment, tending their horses, doing the 101 little things that add up to an attitude of readiness, an attitude of waiting, waiting for the signal to go into battle, which they expect momentarily. Naturally, it's the heavy cavalry brigade under General Scarlett which expects to bear the brunt of any attack launched against the Russian position. Near where I'm standing is the famous Scottish company, the Inniskillings, dressed in their distinctive kilts. You can probably hear their bagpipes. And there are the Scots, the Greys, and the Royal Dragoons. Some distance behind my position, the light cavalry, the light brigade, under the command of Lord Cardigan, is making its own preparations to support the heavy cavalry in battle. We're waiting down here. We're watching. Something is certain to happen, but when? Meanwhile, Don Hollenbeck is stationed to my right, a mile and a half across the valley. He's covering the area around the headquarters of Brigadier Airy, the ranking officer in charge of all Allied forces in this battle. How do things look from your vantage point, Don? I'm standing something closer than a stone's throw from Brigadier Airy's tent, and since the sudden, breathtaking attack of the Russians against the Turks a short while ago, this has been an area of tremendous activity. Men hurrying in and out of the tent, men carrying messages to and from Lord Raglan, the Allied Commander-in-Chief in the Crimea, men waiting outside for orders, for rumors, anything. Everyone here is asking the question they must be asking all over the battlefield. Where were the British when the attack was launched? There are soldiers all around me as I stand here, and I'd like to let you hear what they're thinking. Here, sir, please, you. Who, uh, me? Yes, would you let me ask you a few questions for the American radio audience? Let's hear the questions, and then I'll tell you. All right, what's your, what's your name? That's the first question I ain't going to answer. That's all right. Okay, now you're a soldier in No, the... you don't. You don't name my company. Well, if you don't want to... Uh... I ain't going to say nothing if you give out my name of the company. All right, all right. Since we haven't mentioned your name or your company, maybe you can be a little more frank. Happen I can. My two best friends have been killed by the collar, and I ain't happy about it. Oh, naturally not, naturally not. Now, don't get me wrong. I expect to see my friends die. That's what soldiering comes to. 
a chance right. to be with your friends when they die. That's right. But what did they die for? That's what I want to know. You think it was because we could beat the Russians? Well, wasn't that true? Was it? Why didn't we move up and help the Turks at those gun positions? Yeah. It'd have made my friends die in the cholera mean something, sir. Why didn't we? Well, maybe the higher strategy. Higher strategy. I know all about higher strategy. I was there when we attacked this blasted Crimean Peninsula in the first place. We'd all have been killed if the Russians didn't withdraw first. And all because back in London, the chaps with the wigs didn't know the water on the side of that peninsula was too shallow for Yes, yes, I know all about that. I believe it's generally considered a blunder, but it didn't have any bad consequences. Yeah, come here. Don't talk that way. Are you leaving me, Bill? Now you don't. Excuse me, sir. I don't want Bill to get into trouble. It's all right. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you very Bill much. Bill thinks too much, sir. The soldier's got no right to think. Come on, Bill. I didn't expect to get such a frank statement of the complaints of the ordinary soldier, but I can say that when we have no microphone with us, we do hear such statements often. Now... Here's a young infantryman standing right beside me who was shaking his head very vigorously while his fellow soldier was talking. You don't agree with what's just been said? No, I don't. Well, the other man raised an interesting point, though I don't think he pursued it. The point as to what you are fighting for. I'm fighting for the Queen, God bless her. You, Queen Victoria, means your country, and that's your country that you're fighting for, is that it? That's right, sir. And in what way is the Queen threatened by the Russians? I don't rightly know, sir. Uh, I leave it to them as understand such things to tell me. Thank you very much. And now here, oh, here, over here, please, is a French lieutenant. Monsieur, you speak English. We have to... Would you just come a little closer, please? Thank you. Now, what do you think of the alliance between your country and the English and the Turks? Well, I am very happy, monsieur, to fight with such brave men. The three armies get along well together? Oui. Uh, one little thing I, I could wish would not be so. And what's that? Well, you must understand, monsieur, that I am a liaison officer. I, I come together with English command officers. Yes, yes, of course. We are all en rapport. We are friends, is it not? But just... This one little thing. And what is that? Lord Raglan, the Allied Commander-in-Chief. I would wish that when he talks of the enemy, he would not any longer call them the French. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much. Thank you very much. And now I've got word from Bill Leonard up there on the hill behind me, so go ahead, Bill Leonard. I have at my microphone a most keen observer of this war, one of the most respected and best-informed newspaper correspondents in the whole world, Mr. William Howard Russell of the London Times. Bill Russell, how do things appear to you at this moment? Well, in all candor, Mr. Leonard, I'm frightfully disturbed. Well, I know that many of us here were amazed that the British divisions did not move up in defense of the Turks, and I imagine... Yes, I can't understand that. Of course, we didn't have much that could be moved up at the time. We weren't properly reinforced by infantry. Yes, but when the Russians were storming the Turkish positions out there, uh, where was the British cavalry? Uh, To an Englishman, Mr. Leonard, that's a disturbing question. I can only say that it may have seemed more important to move the cavalry to the right, as Lord Lucan did, in order to protect the road to Balaclava. 
I can only hope it was the proper move. Of course, there there have been a, a number of mystifying things from the very start of this war, haven't there? You know, the various things that we correspondents have discussed privately from time to time. I presume you mean such things as uh, consulting the ghost of Napoleon as to how to fight the war. Yes, yes, that, that story about using a sort of Ouija board to communicate with Napoleon. Well, I've heard that said, and much more about the... Uh, you might say, uh, casual arrangements for this campaign. Yes, such as the, the study of a few artist sketches of Sevastopol. That was, uh, shall we say, an unusual way to prepare a siege. Huh? I can only agree. Of course, there's a, there's a further question, a sort of moral question, which is being asked in some neutral countries. I'd, well, I'd like to hear an Englishman's viewpoint. I have no official standing, Mr. Leonard. No, but uh, as a representative of the London Times, you're well-informed and... Well, what I refer to is what happened when this war started. The Tsar invaded the Transdanube provinces in the Balkans. Yes, and of course that's why the British and French troops were brought out to the Black Sea and stationed at Varna. Correct. But this Allied move was for defense against possible Russian attack. And when the Russians did not attack, when they, when they drew back, when they evacuated the provinces they'd taken, there, were, there was no apparent cause for war. Why then did the British and the French invade the Crimea? Well, uh, uh, we had our troops there. We'd, uh, we'd brought them all the way. Uh, we, um, we felt that... Uh, you mean, having brought them all the way, the war office wanted to do something with them? Well, I'm not sure I'd put it that way, Mr. Leonard. Uh, I'd say we had to show Russia we were in earnest. Well, anyway, thank you, Bill Russell of the London Times. And now, far down the valley, we can see the Russian troops beginning to move. Yes, there's a whole company of cavalry cantering across the valley in tight formation. Now they're, they're wheeling over to the right, and they're, they're coming this way. They may be getting set for an attack. No, no, they wheel again. All, all of these preparations would certainly seem to indicate that another Russian attack is in the offing, perhaps in a few moments, perhaps not. We'll try to get more information about what these Russian movements mean, and while we do, this would be a, an excellent time to hear from the veteran CBS News analyst, Quincy Howe who's stationed in CBS's temporary headquarters in a farmhouse to the rear of the hill on which we stand. Come in, Quincy Howe. Day of decision. Up to now, there's been little but confusion in this war. Its causes are obscure, involved, contradictory. Tsar Nicholas I says that Russia has set out to become the protector of Orthodox Christians against Turkish persecution. The Turks claim that Orthodox Christians suffer no persecution. The English have never seen any religious issue at stake in this war. They assert that if the Russians occupy Constantinople, well, that would make the Russians guilty of political aggression against a weak people. The Tsar replies that Britain's concern for weak people is sheer hypocrisy, that what really worries Britain is Russia's threat to the Dardanelles and to the vital land route to India. Napoleon III of France has been declaring that as a good Roman Catholic, he cannot admit the Russian claims that Orthodox Christians deserves special treatment. Well, so much confusion has surrounded the start of this war that each side calls the other the aggressor and with certain amount of justice. One thing, though, is certain. Whatever religious or political consequences this war will have, the economic consequences will be far-reaching. And today, on the plain of Balaclava, all these issues may be finally resolved. Always remember, the Allies are still besieging Sevastopol. And whether it will stand or fall may be determined by what happens right here today. This, as I said, is a day of decision. And 
Uh, just a moment. A note has been handed to me. Ned Calmer at British Cavalry Headquarters has some news for us. Come in, Ned Calmer. I've interrupted Quintry Howe's analysis because I've been fortunate enough to persuade Lord Lucan, the British Cavalry Commander, to grant us a short interview. Uh, very short, young man. Uh, Lord Lucan, we've been noticing Russian troop movements at the far end of the valley. Do you expect another attack, sir? A military man always expects an attack, sir. And if the Russians are foolhardy enough to launch one, they'll meet with, uh, shall we say, a warm reception at the hands of Her Majesty's Cavalry. Well, would you tell us why the British troops did not support the Turks holding the advanced positions when the Russians attacked earlier? today? Uh, no comment. Well, uh, do you expect a counterattack before the Russians move again? No comment. Can you tell us something about your cavalry, Lord Lucan? Well, I'm sure that even the enemy must know that Her Majesty's heavy cavalry divisions are gallant and brave troops, and, and that with their customary support of artillery and infantry, they will, as always, give a good account of themselves. Then you're relying on the heavy brigade. Oh, most assuredly. What about Lord Carligan's light cavalry brigade, sir? Well, it's no secret, even to the enemy, that there are only around 600, uh, 607 to be exact in this light brigade, a very small force. Small, Lord Lucan, but great fighting men, as I certainly can testify. Well, I have no fault to find with the men, but it's unwise to expect too much of them. There are only 600 strong, and they are armed with sabers and lancers. It was a quick lightning action, but the, uh, the heavies, General Scarlet's men, they're the chaps for the heavy work. <laughs> yes, and uh, now if you'll <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you very much, Lord Lucan. Now, Don Hollenbeck, over to my right across the Balaclava Valley, wants the microphone. So come in, Don. It seems increasingly clear here that whatever action develops here today will see the cavalry in the key position. For another point of view on the use of cavalry in battle, I have here a famous light cavalry officer, Captain Lewis Edward Nolan. Captain Nolan is well known to all correspondents as a blunt, outspoken man. Captain Nolan, I'd say many of your fellow British officers find you somewhat too blunt, too outspoken, although all of them have read your works on the cavalry and its maneuvers. Captain Nolan's an expert on cavalry, an expert who disagrees with many other experts. That's fair to say, isn't it, Captain? It's fair if you call the others experts. I don't. Well, that might be called a fair sample of your bluntness. Well, I say what I think. Well, all right. Now, just how do your views differ from those of some of your fellow officers? I think all this emphasis on the heavy cavalry is wrong. I think the light cavalry can do anything the heavies can do and do it better. Well, after all, Captain Nolan, the light cavalry with sabers or lances can scarcely charge big guns and large armed forces, can it? At Blenheim in 1704, it was the British light cavalry that won the day against the French and the Bavarians. In 1812, at Salamanca, a single brigade of our light cavalry cut through the French army. The British light cavalry can break squares, take batteries, ride over columns of infantry, beat any other cavalry in the world. Captain Nolan, sir. You seem to be wanted, Captain. Brigadier Air is asking for you, sir. Huh? Oh, uh, very well. That I'll was Captain on. Nolan, and he's... Well, he's not the only one moving toward Brigadier Airy's tent. There's a stir, a bustle, as though something were... Yes, something is going to happen. The Allies make counterattack. I don't believe there's any Russian activity, although, of course, I can't see what's going on farther down the valley. So I'm going to switch you back to Bill Leonard, who commands the view of the whole battlefield. Come in, Bill Leonard. This is Bill Leonard again. Now, I, I do have, as Don Hollenbeck told you, a better view of things up here, and I can say that masses of Russian horsemen down the valley are still moving about, apparently getting ready for battle. But most of the activity is in the British camp below me. Every 
few seconds, it seems, a man leaves Brigadier Airy's tent and runs across the ground to his company. You can hear those trumpets sounding, and I'm sure an attack is in prospect. Yes, there's General Scarlet raising his sword out in front of the heavy cavalry. The Greys, the Enniskillens, the Dragoons. He's raising his sword. I'm sure he's calling for the attack. There are the trumpets. Trumpets sounding the advance. And the cavalry is breaking into a trot. What a, what a sight that is. Perfect, rhythmic precision. Lines of heavy cavalry are moving up and up, up. But... The light brigade now under Cardigan is not moving. They've, they've mounted their horses, but they appear to be standing by for orders. This is the heavy cavalry that's going into action before our very eyes. The Russians are moving to meet them. The Russian cavalry, I'd say, oh, 1,500, 2,000 Cossacks and Hussars are advancing up the valley. They're formed into a great solid square and are galloping forward toward the British. I, I've never seen anything like this. A, a solid block of Russian horsemen is advancing to meet the British heavy cavalry. They... Well, they outnumber the British, I'd say, two to one, and they're moving toward a head-on collision. Those are the Russian guns speaking now. The British heavy cavalry has broken into a canter. There's General Scarlet out in front, waving his sword. They're still about 500 yards apart. And there, there's the gallop, the call to the gallop, and now General Scarlet's saber is pointing, he's pointing it toward the Russians. The lances go down, and there's the charge. The British heavy cavalry is now in full charge against the Russians. And, and the Russians have, have halted. They've stopped. They're going to take the charge head on. They're standing stock still. They're bracing for the full impact of the British charge. Oh, they, they've hit them. The first British line has engaged the Russians. The British cavalry is tangling hand-to-hand -hand now with them. They're, they're fighting hand-to-hand, -hand, sword to sword, and, and, and desperately. The British are, are penetrating. We can see their scarlet tunics threading through that, that big wall of dark gray. And, and the sun flashing on their swords. Men are, men are going down, and what a sight! That, that whole great mass of men in motion, and seething with the quick downward slash of swords and the rearing of those horses. There's a, there's a scarlet tunic falling in an arc to the ground, and a, and a horse is coming back this way, riderless. Don Hollenbeck may have a closer view of this action. Let's have him tell us what he sees. Come in, won't you, Don Hollenbeck? Are you there, Don Hollenbeck? Are you there, Don? Come in, Don Hollenbeck. I... I can't see Hollenbeck in the valley below me, and apparently... Well, I, I don't know what's happened to him. We'll try again in a moment. But now, look, look, out on the battlefield, the Russians are breaking. The Russian cavalry is giving way. They're turning, turning now. They're beginning to break. They're turning, and they're racing back down the valley... And now on the field, those red tunics of the British are in the majority. I think for the first time, the Russians seem to have broken in complete rout. They're scrambling back, wildly back, behind that protective line of guns far down the valley. That cheer, that cheer going up from some of the infantrymen who've come up on the hill to watch the battle. I, well, I... <laughs> I can scarcely believe it in, in this short time, in just a few minutes, it seems, a superior body of Russians has been driven back. There are men lying down there on that battlefield, more Russians than British, but many, many of each. The ground down there is strewn with helmets and swords and lances and the bodies of fallen men and fallen horses. Uh, many of the British are dismounting now. They've, they've won the field and they're going to take care of their wounded. They're, well, there's a pause in the battle now. It may be only momentary, though it... It would seem that the British would want to press their advantage. The heavy brigade may be about to reform its lines, and possibly reinforcements are going to come up quickly. Yeah, just, just a moment. 
Don Hollenbeck has finally made contact with us. Don Hollenbeck is apparently safe. He's calling for the air. Come in, Don. There's more excitement and stir around Brigadier Airy's headquarters now. And there's Nolan, Captain Nolan. He's just left Airy and he's leaped on his horse. He's starting across the valley at full gallop. I don't know where he's going. The only place he can be headed for is his own outfit, the Light Brigade, over across the field where Ned Calmer is stationed. I can't imagine what message Nolan is carrying to the Light Brigade unless it is simply to shift position. But then why the extreme, the really frantic haste? I can see him riding across the valley and how that man can ride. He's reached the Light Brigade and dismounted now. Ned Calmer, can you give us any information? Come in, Ned Calmer. Captain Nolan has just arrived here. He's talking now to Lord Lucan, Lord Cardigan, and some of their aides. They're not 30 yards away from me. I must say they're, they're talking quite heatedly. They seem to be questioning Nolan closely. He's very excited, talking volubly, gesticulating, waving his arms. He's pointing out toward the valley, toward the far end of the valley that's bristling with Russian guns. But I can't believe... Lord Lucan is definitely arguing with Captain Nolan. And Nolan continues to point dramatically out toward the valley. Lord Lucan's shaking his head now. He throws up his hand. He's giving orders to Lord Cardigan. I can't hear... I can't hear what... I can't say what's going to happen here, but you heard those trumpet calls. Men are getting to their horses. Nolan is mounting. But I don't understand how... If that valley, if that's where they're headed, and I don't know where else they could be going... That valley is impregnable. There's nothing that 600 men with sabers could possibly accomplish against those guns. They have no protective fire, no support that I can see. But perhaps I've misunderstood all the signs. Possibly the light brigade is not going to charge after all. No, they are forming ranks. This is a very peculiar state of... Come on, boy. That was the signal they're riding. The light brigade is moving forward. here and over a slight rise. They're heading straight toward the Russian line. I'm going to try to move further down the valley beyond that rise. But meanwhile, maybe Don Hollenbeck crossed the valley from me at Brigadier Airy's headquarters. Maybe he knows what's in the wind. So come in, Don Hollenbeck. Headquarters here is in an uproar. The light brigade certainly does seem to be charging straight into the main Russian line. They're... They're beginning to ride by now just as if nothing could stop them. Some of the officers here say that Captain Nolan has made a terrible mistake. They say he did not carry an order for the light brigade to charge, simply to advance to a forward position. And they feel he either misunderstood that order or he deliberately misinterpreted it so that he could put his theories about light cavalry to a test. That's all from here now. Over to Bill Leonard on the hill overlooking the valley. Come in, Bill Leonard. In the distance, those 600 cavalrymen of the Light Brigade are definitely, definitely heading straight down the valley. There can be no question about it. The Russians, at, at least 2,000 of them, are uh, uh, drawn up in two solid masses behind a wall of cannon stretched across the valley. Not only that, the hills overlooking that main Russian line are studded with field artillery, and the Russians even have troops in reserve behind their lines. This is the formidable offense the 600 British cavalrymen are going to attempt to breach. The Russians are braced, waiting, and the Light Brigade is getting closer and closer. Aren't they going to turn back? I, I can easily pick out Captain Nolan in the vanguard. 
And there, there go the guns. Stop it. They, oh, they must be going to turn away. This must be a feint. No, they're, they're dashing straight into the fire of those guns. That line of guns is one great sheet of flames. And this is, this is awful. Their men are going. Captain Nolan, Captain Nolan just tumbled from his horse. And now the guns and nails on both sides have opened up on the British there. They're, they're caught in the, in the crossfire. Horses rearing and wanting to turn in the, and the horsemen def, desperately pushing them forward and, and still forward. And now they've reached the, the line of cannon. They're hurling themselves on the Cossacks and Hazars, the massed Russian cavalry, and hopelessly outnumbered, of course. There were, uh, what, what is it, 600 men in the charge. There are many, many fewer now, and they're going down and, and down. And all oh, the... Russian artillerymen have turned their line of cannon around there. They're firing straight into that mass. And Russian guns are shooting into that struggling mass of friend and foe alike. Yes, the, the Russians have turned their guns on their own men tangling with the British. Horses without riders are running in crazy circles around the battlefield. It can't go on much longer. It just can't. The carnage is unbelievable. Now the... The British-like cavalrymen, those few remnants of those 600, are beginning to withdraw to making their way back through the Russian line of guns. And as they make their way back, many of them more are falling and, and going down. The Russian cannon have stopped firing. Their, their terrible work is finished. The cannon are quiet. It's, it's, it's over. It's, it's really over. There are just a few straggling British survivors coming back out of that valley of horror, most of them on foot and many of them wounded. The Russian cavalry, Russians are not pursuing them. They're, they're not following at all. They're, they're back there behind their line of artillery and it's, it's clear that they too have suffered heavy losses. Now I see that the nearest of the British survivors are, are a good way up the valley. I, I can see Ned Calmer all set up now far over to the left. I, I see him there with the soldiers moving painfully past him, slow and in halting retreat. And so we switch you now to Ned Calmer. Come, Ned. I'm quite near the men as they return from the horrible slaughter that we've just witnessed. They're coming quite close to me now. I'm going to try to get some of them to speak to you. Yes, sir, you. Would you let me ask you a few questions? No, no, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Uh, uh, Corporal, could you come here for just a moment? No, i got to get these men back. I'm never going to get any of these men to talk. I'm supposed to tell you what I've seen, but... I can think only of these men of the cavalry. I've, I've lived with them for weeks now. I've come to know them well. They're my friends. They're coming back now. Some of them are. Maybe you can hear them going past. A few feet from me. Well, I'm a reporter. I should give you facts and figures and statistics. 607 of my friends of the Light Brigade went into this charge today. It's difficult to estimate, but I'd say only 150 of my friends have come back. And in England, there are 607 homes where this charge of the Light Brigade will never be forgotten by children and parents and widows. There's been nothing decisive on this battlefield yet. It still remains to be seen whether the Russians will... Take Balaclava. October 25th, 1854. Balaclava in 
the Crimea, the British Light Brigade charges a vastly superior Russian force. You are there. You've been listening to the charge of the Light Brigade in the series You Are There. Today's program was written by Robert Senadella, directed by John Dietz, and produced by the CBS Documentary Unit under the supervision of Werner Michel. William Howard Russell was played by Gibson Parker, Mercer McLeod was Lord Lucan, and Burford Hampton was Captain Nolan. Others in the cast included Guy Sorrell, William Padmore, and Alf Shirley. You are there, a fantastic account of the charge of the Light Brigade. <laughs> it is... You're, you're listening to it. I don't know about you, but my, my goose pimples are going crazy on it because I'm listening going, no, 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 like, I, like it's right now. So great account. Fantastic piece of audio. You are there. I got a few more of those that uh, I'll be playing in the next uh, few episodes of the Shot and Shield Supercast. Sadly, though, this brings us to the end of the Shot and Shield Supercast. I want to thank you for listening in Cairo, Egypt. Denver, Colorado, and Christchurch, New Zealand. I have been your parliamentarian of the podcaster, Colonel of the Colonies, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. Don't forget another download in about two weeks. This has been Shot and Shield. I'm out. We dropped at least 60, wouldn't you say? Well, that leaves only 3,940. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity.